step. But the, uh, it, the plaintiff attorneys have never been and probably will never be deterred by the evidence. Uh, that point that this is the ideal situation for shared decision making. Uh, are you feeling lucky, Punk? How much do you love Grandma? And who's the who sits to inherit that large estate? We'd like to know those things before we start. Hey, Rick, we got to hear the April issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you. Uh, we've got Greg on the line in Ann Arbor. Oh, Up yes. Here. And by the way, uh, for those of you who thought that spring uh, was arriving in the Midwest two weeks ago, let me just tell you it's 17 degrees and we're freezing our nanos off here. <laughs> so, uh, so Rick, I'm sure that you're laughing at us being there in California. Uh, not quite, not quite. Hey, let, let me introduce our guest. we got Mike Franco on the line. Mike hasn't been with us for a, a while now, and uh, I'm sure has been accumulating a lot of information that we need to hear about. Mike, welcome. Uh, glad to be here. And uh, by the way, we got about the same temperature. We had about 10 inches earlier in the week, and it just started snowing again about a half hour ago. <laughs> oh, great. Yes. Oh, great. <laughs> yes. Anybody who thought that spring had come to the Midwest and that this global warming had ruined the whole thing, nah, it's it's as cold as it ever was. Well, we're freezing our uh, gonads off here as well. It's uh, 81. Yes, that's what I figured. Okay. Uh, Rick, we, uh, we really are... Uh, blessed today to have uh, Mike with us. Um, uh, Mike and I have taught together at National ASAP. He's not only an MD, he's a JD, he's done risk management, and all I can say is, Mike, it's great to have you here. Uh, Rick and I aren't worthy, so thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. It's great, great to be with you guys. Hey, listen, Mike, uh, let me give you a plug. You have a course coming up uh, shortly in uh, Lost Wages, isn't it? Or where well, is it? Well, well, actually, it's uh, it, uh, the uh, Las Vegas course is in September, mm-hmm. but the one coming up uh, May 25th and 26th is in New Orleans. Oh, really? That's right. It's a high-risk emergency medicine course. It's a two-day course, and uh, it's a great course for anybody who wishes to come. Actually, I was in New Orleans about two, two weeks ago, and um, it, it's a town that just attracts people. It was a couple of days before Mardi Gras, which had something to do with it, I think. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so we've, and actually we've been recording this course for, with you guys for a bunch of years. In fact, my son, Ricky, who's uh, listening uh, uh, on the line here, basically goes out there and records. It'll probably obviously do the Las Vegas one, uh, New Orleans is involves airfares and all that other expensive stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, listen, Mike, we asked if you would um, unload your hard disk on recent things that have uh, come up that you've been aware of. You have been, you were the general counsel of uh, what was formerly called Emergency Medicine Physicians of Canton, Ohio, and they are now called U.S. Acute Care Solutions. And uh, despite your best efforts to, to kind of retire after 20-some years there, <laughs> you're not having much luck, apparently. Yeah. Well, I'm still involved a little bit with managing claims, and uh, uh, we, we are seeing more and more claims. It's, it's kind of natural. Uh, with a lot of tort reform, the expected outcome is that uh, there are fewer cases uh, because the m- money available is less than before, but what that naturally means is that attorneys are picking cases which are going to have 
uh, larger de- potential damages. So we're seeing fewer cases, but the the cases which do pay out are paying out more money. Uh, the other trend which we continue to see, you know, for years and years, and probably it still is a national trend, cases like cardiac cases were the uh, the big payout cases. Well, one of the things we're seeing now is that the neurological uh, cases are beginning to outstrip the cardiac cases. And yep. i give you the one example, which I'm sure Greg is is more than familiar with, are all the uh, failure to diagnose stroke cases. Uh, and this is driven by... Uh, the religion of TPA, uh, which says that uh, anything which resembles a stroke can be miraculously cured by TPA. And if you haven't diagnosed the stroke or you haven't diagnosed it in a timely fashion so that TPA could have been given within the three or four and a half hours, depending on your, your school of thought, then you're liable for all the bad outcome. Uh, so we're seeing more and more of, of those cases. I just like to jump in and say, sure. absolutely, the the number of cases in our group, uh, and we've now been sold into a larger and larger entity. Uh, the number of cases has dropped like a stone, but the but the types of cases, neurological cases, and there's this funny uh, feeling out there that no matter what the thing is, posterior fossa, anterior fossa. Uh, and by the way, there's no evidence that TPA is good in the posterior fossa. It's just give it, and 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 there's nothing intelligent about it. What we're going to see, Mike, I think, is a shift because now that we've got some real data about sucking the clots out, at least anteriorly, um, I think we're going to see a different kind of lawsuit on stroke coming up. But those haven't come down the pike yet. But I have a feeling that they are on their way. Although actually, I think th- actually, that- they're already here. Yeah. We've already we've already seen at least one one case where the hospital was not capable of giving TPA, and the allegation by the plaintiff is that the patient should have been transferred to a center where they could have done extraction of the clot. So we're already it's already here, Greg. Well, by by the way, the um, a lot of that data on extraction of the clot. If we look at at the Mister Clean trial and some of those things. They're talking about time frames going out to six hours. Uh, and I think that the plaintiff is not totally wrong that if you can't do an anterior circulation uh, procedure at your center, sending them out is not a bad idea. And if I was in Ishpeming, Michigan, and I had an anterior circulation clot, uh, and I'm a vasculopath, I know it's coming down the pike for me at some point in time. I'd want to be. I'd want to be taken to a place that could suck that thing out. We'll, we'll try it. Yeah, but the uh, the plaintiff attorneys have never been, and probably will never be, deterred by the evidence, Greg. Yes, I mean, I, it, it, it doesn't matter where the stroke is, or the absence of evidence that TPA works for posterior strokes or anything else. Uh, they'll still and. And the sad thing is they will find experts to testify uh, that even though there's no evidence that that was the standard of care was to to, uh, to give the TPA anyway. Oh, by God, I, I, I just looked at a case the other day and I'm changing my role now. I'm not so much a, the testifying doctors. I am the one sitting second chair back sort of giving advice on these things. But there was no question that the guy who gave his his uh, testimony knew nothing about stroke, nothing about neuroanatomy, but by God, 
he thought it ought to be given, and that was it. And, uh, oh, you know, I'm sitting there just shaking my head thinking, if Hoffman ever heard that discussion, he'd yeah. puke. Sure. <laughs> he couldn't handle it. Another thing which, which is useful to our, our listeners is that uh, we went over the records of our cases, uh, and in the failure to diagnose uh, stroke allegations, we've had nine cases over the 20 years uh, where the patient presented with vertigo uh, and eventually was diagnosed with a stroke, whether it could have been diagnosed initially or not. In almost every one of the cases, an MRI was not done. In some of those cases, a CT was done. Of the nine cases, only six of them actually resulted in litigation. Uh, but the uh, the whole area of patients presenting with vertigo is really ripe for uh, litigation if you're failing to work those up. Uh, you know, I, I've spoken on this many times at the national media, and I think that you're right. The science does not match with the allegations in court. Um, and I'll tell you the biggest mistake is that people will shoot a CT, which can be 12 hours behind the event, and say, oh, there's no stroke um, on the CT scan, so they can't be having a stroke. That's just plain wrong. Uh, and even the MRI can be 6 to 12 hours behind the event. So that... Uh, that you can have a perfect the the physical exam trumps uh, our radiologic uh, projects. If somebody has all the physical findings that go with stroke, they're having a stroke, and because the CT doesn't show it yet, doesn't mean they're not having a stroke. Sure. The other another interesting trend that we're seeing are these uh, failure to give Tamiflu cases. Uh, cases of influenza. We've we've had three now, mm. um, uh, two of which are uh, still open in, in litigation. One of which we took to trial with a uh, defense verdict. Um, but uh, again, uh, the plaintiffs and their experts are not deterred by the evidence that Tamiflu <laughs> uh, is ineffective in cases uh, uh, that are uh, that are more than forty eight seventy two hours uh, after symptom onset. But, but uh, even, even the manufacturer says maybe it gives you 24 hours less symptoms, but nobody says, no, no reputable body says that it stops you from going on to have the complications of flu. Well, that's true. And, and what's happening is the, uh, the plaintiffs are looking to the CDC recommendations, which uh, recommend Tamiflu to be given at any time if there are other risk factors. So the plaintiffs are busy cooking up risk factors, whether those are true or not. But what they're saying is you should have recognized that this was a, a case at special risk and you should have given Tamiflu. And again, they're able to find experts who will testify that not only would it have been standard of care to give the Tamiflu, but it would have been curative, uh, which is obvious nonsense. Uh, but yep. they're saying it anyway. And, of course, the, CD, the CDC recommendations are tainted uh, by the sources of their funds. And I know Jerry has talked about this a lot uh, and, of course, enlightened a lot of us as to the source of the, uh, the CDC's funds. Um, so those recommendations are, uh, are tainted as they are. But uh, they have been trotted out by the plaintiff attorneys in every single one of the cases we've seen. If these people are saying those things... 
this should be the grounds for Daubert challenge because there is absolutely no sign and the manufacturers themselves are not going to go on the stand and say that their product actually prevents the complications of flu. And I, I think that at a certain point in time, the only data, if you're the kindest person in the world at looking at that data, it says that maybe if we get you in the first 48 hours, we can give you 12 to 24 hours less symptoms. But they, the, the manufacturer's never gone on record as saying that it's, it stops sort of the deadlier complications. Although the cases that I think people are talking about are people who are hospitalized for the flu. And uh, that's certainly a very, very, very small subset. And then retrospectively, they said, well, had this person been given this stuff, you wouldn't have been in this situation where they're hospitalized. And when you give it in a hospital, the assumption is that it's going to mitigate some of the uh, consequences. And there's no evidence that that is the case at all uh, either. If I could go back uh, to the um, vertigo, um, when I was a younger doctor, I was very clear when vertigo was peripheral or central. And I, as I've gotten older and dumber, it is clear that I am not able to distinguish as I so confidently did in the past. And you wonder uh, whether our threshold for uh, doing MRIs, what what is that threshold? We can't, should we be doing MRIs in all the people who come in who are elderly and who have vertigo? Greg kind of, Tease out which ones ought to and which ones ought, don't without giving us your four-hour lecture. I'm not going to give you the four-hour lecture, but I will say this, that even at the best hospitals in the best centers, they looked, uh, the, the Boston group looked and saw which cases they missed. And when they looked at it, what they found out was in, in half the cases, nobody had done a decent neuro exam on these patients. And I know you don't want to hear this, Rick, but if the HINTS exam is positive, if they have bizarre, bizarre nystagmus, and they've got any other kind of um, posterior fossa finding, those people probably have a stroke. Uh, and and uh, if they all they have is lateral gaze nystagmus and nothing else involving uh, brainstem nuclei, the cerebellum, that sort of thing, those people probably have end organ disease and they're not going to get better uh, no matter what you do. Here's the other thing is when you diagnose a posterior fossa stroke, what's the therapy for that, Rick? I mean, you've looked at all this literature. Uh, there is none. There is none. And I, and I think that, that, believe me, I want there to be a therapy. I want it desperately because I'm probably going to get one. In fact, who knows? I may have had one. But I think that until we have something we're going to do for these people, I, I would think that we can mount adequate defense um, uh, in these cases. Now, I know that nobody likes to have sent home someone who comes back with a stroke. The other side of that coin is we, we don't always pick these things up. And if you have the therapy that, that has reasonable chance of solving the problem, I want to see the literature. Well, Michael, what is, would you restate your experience? Um, how did it work out? 
Well, first of all, it's ironic that you asked the question about the MRIs because several months ago, I floated the idea in our group uh, of having a policy which would require uh, or at least recommend an MRI in every case of vertigo because of just what you said, the difficulty of um, of distinguishing peripheral from central vertigo. And, you know, my experience is the same as yours. I, I can't tell. Uh, and basically the idea was discussed, uh, but rejected in favor of doing a neurologic exam, a HINTS exam and so forth. And uh, there was just not a whole lot of uh, uh, interest in requiring MRIs for all those cases. Um, of the nine cases, uh, six went to litigation. Uh, and most of those are dismissed, but a couple of them were settled for significant uh, amounts of money. Mm. You know, and in answer to Greg, you know, I understand about Darber challenges and uh, they can be useful at times. But uh, when a plaintiff's expert uh, doesn't have the evidence, what uh, he or she may have is uh, X number of years experience, which they bring to bear on it. And not every judge is willing to reject the testimony or exclude the testimony of an expert who's got those kind of credentials. I've seen it happen. So it can work. And sometimes a judge will say, just saying in your experience, uh, the TPA is useful for a posterior stroke is not going to uh, to be adequate and will not survive a Darber challenge. But not every judge is willing to do that in the face of those kind of credentials. No, uh, and- I, I, I understand that. Um- that's why occasionally we have to, as practitioners, uh, take some of these folks to the ethics committee at ASAP. I've been involved in this a couple of times, and um, you know, um, it, it's it's not a bad way to go when someone is just uh, raping and pillaging their way across the country with these kinds of comments. Mike, uh, is it the same expert uh, that is a? Uh, uh- um, testifying in these cases, or are there one or two or three that are? We, we see a number of them, and, and this is this is unfortunate. There are too many acolytes in the religion of TPA. Um, yes, you know, and this is especially true among neurologists. I mean, the neurologists are killing us with this stuff. Uh, you know, the the best advice I can uh, I can give at this point, because there there really is in emergency medicine, there is a basic skepticism of TPA based on the evidence and how weak the evidence is. But the fact is uh, that it still is something that should be discussed with and offered uh, to patients. Uh, uh, if, if they don't want to take the risk, that's one thing. But if they do want to take the risk, uh, then they ought to be able to have access to it. And that is really going to, to protect you. Yeah, there, I don't think there's any question that nobody's going to argue uh, that point, that this is the ideal situation for shared decision making. Uh, are you feeling lucky, punk? Then we'll, yeah, give it, exactly. we'll give it to you, you know. Yeah. How much do you love grandma and who's the, who sits to inherit that large estate? We'd like to know those things before we start. Yeah. Yeah. Can I say a few words about shared decision-making? Yes. I have a feeling that uh, you're not a big fan. Here it comes. Here it comes. Well, the emperor has no clothes. Right. Um, You know, shared decision-making is a fad uh, and it's unfortunate. It's it's almost an indictment of the medical profession that we have to carve out cases that which we think are appropriate 
for sharing decision making with the patients. I mean, from for uh, for as long as medicine has been around, the person who is supposed to be making the decisions is the patient, not us. Uh, the idea that we decide which cases we are going to share the decision-making is at odds with the whole idea of patient autonomy. Uh, and actually, it was uh, I was listening to a, a tape of, uh, um, I, I believe it was one of the interviews from Emergency Medical Abstracts, and they were interviewing a fellow who's uh, very much into shared decision-making and is training residents how to do shared decision-making. Uh, and it was interesting hearing him try to stumble around trying to distinguish shared decision-making from informed consent. Uh, there really is not much difference between that. Uh, and the whole idea is we're going to decide that there are cases in which we uh, think shared decision-making is inappropriate. Uh, that, again, flies against the whole idea of informed consent. Now, obviously, in emergency medicine, where there are time constraints, uh, uh, you're not going to be able to engage in shared decision-making. Like, you know, would you like some CPR for your cardiac arrest? I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. But uh, on, on the other hand, this, the, uh, the whole idea uh, that uh, it, the basis for it was explained, well, when there's, we won't engage in shared decision-making when there's only one right decision. Well, there's always more than one right decision. Among others is let's not do anything. Uh, and the patients have a right to understand what that will mean and the consequences of that. And that's been affirmed uh, right up through the Supreme Court, even if it means you're going to lose your leg or lose your life. So the idea that we're going to decide if, that we're not going to do shared decision making because there's only, only the course which I think is appropriate, that's nonsense. The vast majority of people come to us for our best opinion, and they'll look at you and say, doctor, what would you do if it was your kid, if it was this or that? And I think I don't think we should become so wimpy these days that we don't give our opinion to patients. I think that's what they came to us for was an opinion. I, you know, um, I think Mike and I have very similar views on this. When he uses the term fad, I, I couldn't emphasize that enough. This is just another sort of pinhead nitwit program we've got going on here. Uh, and, and I agree, you have to talk to people. You have to, you have to get them involved in, in how you've made that decision. But to think that what they want is a two-hour discussion on this is just wrong. Although I think that uh, listening to the two of you, there is clearly a difference in, uh, I, I, I perceive, in how you view this. I, uh, I don't honestly think it's a fad. I think it's, we, we, we have a phrase now for it, but I think it's stuff that we, sh we should have been doing all along because, and there are, and you're right, Mike. I mean, now the, you can say, well, do you want some antibiotics for your kid's appendicitis or do you want to have surgery? And there, but I think, I think you can only do this well when you know the facts. So you can say, well, there's a 25% chance that this is going to come back at some other time. It may be inconvenient when it comes back, et cetera. With regard to TPA, 12% get better, 6% get worse. But if you don't really know the data, I think it's very unfair to ask the people, well, what, what do you want? 
Well, the question is whose data and what's the alternative? And, and the, right. the, for the primary example I would give you has to do uh, with TPA, of course. I mean, if you listen to some, uh, some neurologists who are in love with TPA, they'll tell you, well, the only right course is TPA. So there's really no point in shared decision-making. Uh, and even to the point where in one world-famous institution that I'm aware of, uh, they were saying at one point that you don't need informed consent that's, for TPA because it's the standard of care. I know exactly, you're familiar with that. That's exactly right, which was outrageous. 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 Go ahead. Let, let, let's let's hear some more of what, where we're screwing up. Well, one of the, one of the things which is not so much we're screwing up, but we're getting screwed by is electronic health records. Uh, we're absolutely the plaintiff attorneys are routinely now calling for uh, for the uh, the audit trails for the medical records, going through it to see if the records were uh, were amended at any point. Uh, they want to know how often each physician uh, has accessed the record even. And they will uh, try and uh, imply that something uh, nefarious was going on just from accessing the record. And they will try to use that to imply that the record was, uh, was in fact tampered with. Uh, the other thing is that with electronic health records, it, a lot of it is templated. And it's just too easy to let things go and not review all the voluminous stuff which is in there. And what the plaintiff attorneys do, and they go through the record with a fine-tooth comb with the physician, and they find errors, uh, things which are documented, which were not done, which were not present, and they will use that to uh, attack the credibility of the physician. And and it works. I, I couldn't agree with you more that <clears throat> we think that more is better and sometimes more is less, do the correct exam for the problem sitting in front of you. But to think that you've got to do every part of every checkbox, this is a way to get more money from the billing uh, process, but it certainly isn't what we actually do in emergency medicine. And I've seen physicians just fold on the stand. Good plaintiffs' attorneys know how to lay those questions out, and uh, and they they will embarrass a doctor on the stand. Yeah, and another thing which we see in the records, of course, everyone's mm-hmm. got now these uh, these follow up instructions with explanations for uh, everything, and uh, and patients go home uh, with a you know a two volume set of papers, uh, and of course, no one reads these because they're too too big. Now they're important. Uh, because in litigation, uh, it always comes up, well, were you given these instructions? And when the patient says, yes, I was given those, but I didn't read them, that is, uh, will not help the patient's case, and it does help our case. So the instructions are still important. But the fact is that we have an obligation to advocate for our patients and to help them. Uh, we have a project going on now where we're creating a set of very simple one-page instructions uh, for the patients for each uh, clinical problem, really boiling it down and, uh, and simplifying it to a fourth-grade reading level so it will be accessible. Uh, if we give patients uh, six, ten pages of stuff, we know they won't read it. If we give them one page of stuff, 
then maybe they will read it. Hopefully they will. And it's got some graphics on it too, makes it, uh, make it uh, more accessible. But we're, we're settling on a one-page maximum. Now, one of the things to protect ourselves is we may add either a link or a QR code or something to so that the patients can access more detailed information about those things so that we can say we made this accessible to patients to at least protect ourselves. But I think in this case, uh, Greg is absolutely right. Less is more. We went, uh, we went through the age. In fact, the three of us on this uh discussion. All remember when we had a half uh, sheet that we tore off on the back and gave to the patient. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, um, we looked the last time we checked at our big hospital here, the going home package was 19 pages. I think they were better off when they had that half sheet of paper that said, you will see Dr. Smith at eight <clears throat> o'clock tomorrow morning. If this happens, come back. Um, I think that was just as useful. We've made these things mini textbooks in medicine, uh, and we've made them with algorithms which the patient cannot follow. And I think that sometimes um, what we've done is we've buried them in, in crap. We think that protects our butt in court. I don't think that's the case. I think the average juror has has already dealt with too much information, and now they'd like to see something simply laid out. Although there really is no going back uh, for the majority of the world where people have bought into these aftercare instruction programs, which uh, <clears throat> don't have the idea that less is more. Yeah. We, um, we used a one-page aftercare instruction, one-page, for 34 years, it was never an issue in any kind of complaint, litigation, ever, nothing ever. Now, yes, Greg, you're right. I am of the generation that remembers those half page, and there was always a little space for us to write in the specific instructions that we wanted. And we never needed more space than was given in that little half page. Well, by God, we were going to fit it in that <laughs> half page if it killed us. Uh, yeah. the, the other thing is, as the bigger discharge programs came out, what, what I always did was took my pen and I circled those three or four things in there that you really should read. Because what did I know? I knew that the, the amount read is inversely proportional to the amount written. Yeah, while we're talking about uh, discharge instructions, uh, one of the best things we ever did was uh, set on a policy which recommends that with undifferentiated abdominal pain, uh, where the patient is being discharged, that we recommend that the patient be re-examined in 8 to 12 hours, uh, either arranging it with a follow-up physician who's who's going to be capable of doing a good exam or having them come back to the emergency department. Uh, we still see the occasional missed appendicitis cases uh, or other abdominal pain cases, but I can tell you not a single one of the cases which has gone to litigation uh, since we've done that po policy has followed the policy. They've all told the patient, see your doctor in two to three days, something like that. Right. Uh, this is great insurance, and it's good for the patient too. 
you know, you tell them, we're not sure what's wrong with, uh, with you, but these are things which are dynamic, they can change, we don't want you uh, getting in trouble, so we want you to come back here in 8 to 12 hours and let us re-examine you, or you can, uh, if you can see your doctor in the morning, have them re-examine you at that point. Uh, but this is a, a great policy to adopt, and it's very protective. Uh, Mike, U.S. Acute Care Solutions, uh, I believe, has an endeavor where they're trying to come up with some, I don't want to misstate this, um, guidelines or the like for chief complaints. Is that, um, is, is that a direction that you think people should be going in? Obviously, if, if, if you probably do. Well, I'm not familiar with that particular uh, uh, thing. I know that the U.S. Acute Care Solutions uh, has a clinical governance board, uh, which has representatives from all the component uh, component groups, uh, and they have the final say on the clinical policies and so forth. Uh, but the uh, the committee which I'm still on is the uh, U.S. Acute Care Solutions Risk Management Committee, and we're charged with looking at things like uh, like for example uh, the vertigo workup, like the follow up instructions, uh, like the fail safe program, which I know know uh, you're familiar with, uh, and we. Uh, we bat those ideas around, develop uh, uh, proposed policies, and then submit them to the clinical governance board. Uh, I haven't seen anything in our committee which is based on the chief complaint, Rick. Well, you know, I, maybe I was uh, confused because there's a project that Jim Augustine is heading there. Amr Aldine is involved in it. Um, and it appeared, I, I kind of got the sense it was an attempt to narrow variability, which is kind of one of my. Uh, dog with the bone kind of ideas um but um yes that is something that is something jim of course is the chair of the national uh clinical governance board uh and they it, trying to um reduce variability is one of the things they're charged with but i can't speak knowledgeably about what they're doing with it you know we're our, our course this year has in it one of the one of the topics is um physician variability and the whole point of that uh, talk is to overwhelm the people in the audience with just how gr uh, gross the magnitude of variability is on things, even things like, well, a, a child within 28 days who has a fever, um, have they changed the policy where those kids basically got admitted to the hospital? Uh, there was one tertiary pediatric hospital that admitted 58% of febrile children uh, within one month of age. Another hospital was at 98%. It's like, my God, what, you know, did I miss, did I miss the memo that, that they don't, <laughs> don't have to do that anymore? Yeah, it's, I don't know, but I know that within our fail-safe program, the febrile neonates, uh, we have a policy that requires a full workup, and if there are 28 days or less with a fever, they get admitted. Right. I mean, that, that is that I thought was the standard. Yeah. When you actually look at the data on, on the hospitals that supposedly ought to know better, it is all over the dartboard of what they do and what they consider, you know, uh, the workup now. The, 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 well, do you really need to do the, the lumbar puncture? It's, and it's not particularly data-driven. The, the fact is, is that, as an example, in those cases, not most kids who have a fever that age really don't have anything seriously wrong, but yeah, but uh, you, you really do need to do the the LP, and we've yeah. had some we've had some wonderful saves. No, I that. agree. I agree. Do you have any? What um, I got a couple of 
newspaper articles that we can go through here, but I, I want you to I want you to unload. <laughs> give it give us give us the the result of your uh, your wisdom and experience. Well, talking about variability, I found out found something very interesting. Uh, we had a case where a fellow uh, came in, and we were we were threatened with uh, uh, litigation with this. Actually, it did come to a lawsuit. Uh, this is a fellow who had uh, hit his head um, on an on an overhead beam in, in his basement. He wasn't knocked out. He wasn't even dazed by it. He came in because he had uh, caused a laceration, which required uh, suturing. Uh, now, he was on Coumadin, and he had what would be classified not even as minor head injury, but as minimal head injury. Uh, no loss of consciousness, uh, uh, completely normal Glasgow coma scale, and so forth. Um, and he was discharged, uh, and a few days later, he started uh, developing or manifesting some neurologic uh, symptoms and confusion. Uh, his wife tried to convince him to come to the hospital. He initially refused, but when he finally relented and came back, uh, he was found to have uh, have a subdural hematoma. And of course, the allegation from the plaintiff was that he should have had a CT because he was on Coumadin at the time. And uh, although eventually the suit was was dismissed by the plaintiff with no payment, um, uh, one of the things that I found in in researching this. Uh, is that in the series of cases with minimal head injury where patients are on Coumadin or uh, any kind of uh, anticoagulation, uh, it is not universally true that the, a CT is done for all these patients. And I was able to show some of this research and share it with the plaintiff attorney, and I think it had something to do with, uh, with them dropping the suit, is that there was a large variability. And uh, a, uh, one hospital, for example, one group would report their, their series of findings. And, for example, in 57% of the cases, they would do a CT, but in 43%, they wouldn't even do a CT. Uh, in those cases. So what what this showed was that there was a huge amount of variability. And of course, no one's actually done a study on minimal head injury and anticoagulation to actually uh, show. Uh, there's been no RCT, for example, that actually shows uh, whether you need to do a CT in those cases of minimal head injury. Although we all have cases where there was minimal injury, <laughs> that was associated with the bleed in the head. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, personally it, it, had a guy who uh, was went to the supermarket with his granddaughter <laughs> and wound up somehow bending over uh, uh, to pick up something from the child and accidentally hit their face and their nose against the the, uh, the shelf, and that was it. And I'm not quite sure what precipitated coming to the emergency department. But all I remember is, is that was associated with a bleed in his head, which was, um, which was remarkable, but it scared the bejesus out of me. Understanding, of course, that the timing of when you do the study is important. Right, uh, Yeah, if he'd come in, there may have been nothing, particularly if it's a drop or two bleed that's going to take place over time. Um, uh, the timing of the study is, is as important as whether a study is done and are there any findings. So the neurosurgeons these days, if you have minimal findings, they want you to reverse the anticoagulation and they'll watch them. 
because opening a head is not a benign procedure. Yeah. Yeah, and and in this particular case, that was one of the other points, was that this fellow had absolutely no neurologic uh, deficits or symptoms. And if we had done the CT at that time, it might have been worse for him because the CT more than likely would have been negative. It would have been reassuring to him. It would have been even longer before he came back in. A false sense of security. Precisely. And that, that, that is not a good thing. All right, we wanted Mike to comment on other things too, isn't it? The de- defensive, uh, uh, Mike, didn't you have well, some other be- things you were going to say? Before we go there, um, anything about PAs, NPs, Mike? Um, just the, the the trend is increasing, and I know uh, you both have been on board with the trend of uh, yep. uh, having more and more uh, advanced practice providers, which is the uh, the term we're using now for both PAs and NPs. Uh, we are... Uh, uh, we are u- utilizing uh, APPs more and more, and so it's naturally that uh, the APPs are getting named in more and more of the uh, the litigation. Uh, I can say that as a general rule, in those cases where uh, the APP has seen a patient independently without uh, real-time involvement of the supervising physician, uh, unless there are separate limits of insurance coverage, uh, the supervising physician will often be dropped from the case. Uh, that's just the way it is. Now, on the other hand, if the f- physician and the APP have separate coverage limits, uh, that's too much of a of an attraction to the plaintiff attorney to just drop uh, drop uh, the supervising physician. Greg, you were asking uh, Mike that I interrupted. Well, we had some other things we wanted to comment on. One of them was uh, defensive. Uh, uh, strategies, that sort of thing. Uh, well, I think you wanted to talk about the uh, the judgment defense. Judgment defense. Yeah, we've yeah. never talked about that in the eight years that we've done this. We've never gotten into it, but it would be great if you can help us uh, sift through that. Yes. Well, let me out- outline what it is. It basically, uh, it's that in a case where, uh, where a physician makes a decision, uh, they are permitted to make a judgment call where they're may not be one uh, particularly definite right thing to do. And the physician uh, should not be considered liable or negligent just because he made a decision which resulted in the adverse outcome. And I can tell you that almost every jury instruction I've ever seen, these are the instructions that the judge gives the jury uh, before he sends them to go deliberate and render a verdict. Almost every single one of those jury instructions in med mal cases includes an instruction that says that the physician is entitled to make a judgment call uh, and that just because the uh, the judgment uh, doesn't result in uh, in what the physician wanted or does result in an adverse outcome doesn't mean the physician is negligent. Having said that, relying solely on the judgment call defense is not a very good defense uh, because the plaintiff is just going to say, sure, it's a judgment call. You made the wrong judgment. Uh, and the judgment you made was negligent. Uh, and this is what we see. And it's especially bad because what you don't want is for your experts to say, well, yeah, this is a judgment call. Uh, and um, I think the uh, uh, the defendant physician uh, was reasonable in making this choice, but that's not the choice I would have made. That's like death. To the, that's the defense case. Uh, this is one of the things we go through with uh, with physicians. They, uh, with our 
expert consultants uh, is when they tell us, well, it's really a judgment call, but that's not what I would have done. You know, occasionally uh, the courts get it right. <clears throat> uh, a, a new case, a new uh, decision I was going to bring up sort of uh, backs into this one. And that is there's a Michigan case now, the estate of Holcomb versus Neuenschwander. Um, and the Michigan Court of Appeals, <clears throat> the, the case went to the Michigan Court of Appeals. The jury at the uh, primary at the primary court, at the, at the county level, had said the physician did probably commit negligence, but they determined that the death of the patient some five days later was not affected by that judgment. Uh, the patient, uh, it was five or six days after they seen in the emergency department, that sort of thing. And it went to the Court of Appeals and they said they re reaffirmed the fact that a jury has the power to render a defense a no-cause verdict if they determine that the doctor was negligent, but the negligence did not cause the patient's harm. Yeah, that's uh, that's a little bit different. That's the proximate <laughs> cause defense. Right. That says even though – even. Even if the physician admits that they were negligent, but said my negligence didn't cause the patient's death, didn't cause the patient's harm. Uh, you know, this gets back to, uh, and I know I'm not saying this for you, Greg, or you, Rick, because you're aware of this, but there are four elements of any medical malpractice lawsuit which have to be proved. It has to be a duty, a breach of a duty, damages, and proximate cause of those damages. And if you fail to prove any one of those four things, the suit fails and it, it will be thrown out. It, it actually can't go to the jury or shouldn't go to the jury if those four things are not, not proved. And that last one is actually the hardest one to prove, that proximate cause. Damages are easy because patients, patients come to us with pre-existing damages. They, you know, they don't come to us because they're healthy. They come to us because they're sick or injured. So they already have damages to start with. And the trick for the plaintiff is to prove that what we did or what we do in the emergency department actually is the cause of the ultimate damage. And even if you screw up royally, uh, if the proximate cause is not there, the suit can be thrown, thrown out. Now, having said that, you never really want to try to defend a case solely on proximate cause. I mean, the jury, it, the jury just doesn't like it. And unless the judge throws it out and it goes to the jury, the jury doesn't like it when they say, well, this physician, they really screwed up. And all he's saying is his screw up didn't cause this poor patient. You know, he's in a wheelchair for the rest <clears throat> of his life now. Now you've got the sympathy verdict going for you, which is why you always want to be able to defend on both standard of care and proximate cause. Right. Do you want to talk about? Uh, well, if you have any uh, other cases, Greg, that you want to bring in? I, I just m mentioned that um, the Michigan uh, uh, Supreme Court has again uh, confirmed the fact that a physician's duty of care extends to unidentifiable uh, third persons who are harmed by the physician's treatment uh, or, or management of a patient. Now, we had a series of these cases in the state of Michigan. 1989, we had one called Duval versus Golden, which again um, said, you know what, uh, doctor, you did give those pills, you did give those medicines, you failed to warn, he did go out and have a traffic accident, 
um, you've got to accept some of the duty here. So uh, we, we, have, we have recently reaffirmed that decision here in Michigan just to warn our listeners that uh, anything you do uh, that, that impedes the ability of the patient to function, if it can put other people at harm, think about it and at least warn them what's going to go on. Now, I know all the patients don't follow our warnings, but if you've given the warning, um, most of the juries will consider that you've done your duty, um, if, or particularly if you've warned not only the patient but their family and everybody's heard it. That's going to be much better than if they have to debate the issue. Yeah, this actually goes back to the to the duty element. I just mentioned the four elements of a med mal suit, and the first is duty. And, and generally, uh, there has to be a physician-patient relationship in order for there to be a duty. Uh, and um, if, for example, if if you treat a patient, you give them a narcotic, and they go out and run over somebody, uh, they're driving uh, on the narcotic, they run over somebody, whoever they ran over can't sue you because there is no physician-patient relationship. Now, a majority of states have adopted a policy that says that they can sue you, that there is a duty to third parties. But this is very state-specific, and there are still some states that, <clears throat> that do not allow those third-party Suit. So you have to know uh, which state you're in. Um, but third party, by the way, at least in Michigan, is viewed as both duty to known third party or duty to unknown but predicted third party. Correct. For example, if you're treating an AIDS patient and you haven't told them about warning their partners, those are known third parties who, who are at risk. If you uh, if you don't tell them about the seizure precautions, um, you don't know the name. You can't predict exactly who that person is, but they are predictable in that <clears throat> they could be the victim of of your patient. Yeah, you know one of the things we have not seen yet, and Greg and Rick, maybe you've seen it. Uh, with the opioid epidemic and the widening uh, programs of prescribing naloxone for relatives or uh, other significant others of uh, addicts who might be uh, uh, susceptible to overdose, we have not seen any litigation over this. I have not seen anything coming down the pike for either failure to prescribe the naloxone or prescribing it and failing to appropriately educate. Greg, have you seen anything with this? I have not, but it's very interesting you mention that, Mike, because at the last uh, uh, abstracts meeting, which I was at in, um, in uh, Key West, that exact question came up. Is it now the standard of care, or should it be considered the standard of care, to offer to carry on shared decision-making with the family as to whether they're going to get a prescription for a, uh, an injector to give um, naloxone. And uh, this came up, I, and, and I had to plead ignorance saying, I have not yet seen the filings uh, on this case, but it, it wouldn't surprise me, Mike, if in the next two or three years we see a case. Yeah, of course. Right now, I would say that in answer to the question, it's a judgment call. Yes, exactly. That was that was my my humor. 
Yes, 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 yes. I love that. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> Duly noted. And, uh, but the, the funny thing is, um, isn't it interesting that those people who most need the injectors probably can't afford to buy the injectors these days? I, what is it for a two-pack Narcan injector? It's what, $600, Rick, or something No, like no. That? Actually, I think it's I, – I was going to look it up. I think it's substantially more than that. I think it's now, you know, I, I, I think it's much, much more than that. But it's irrelevant. Whether it's 600 or 6 million, most of those people can't go buy one and just have it sitting around. They can't. And, you know, we purchase the small vials of Narcan for damn near nothing, draw it up in a syringe and give it to people. I mean, it's... It's chump change amounts of money. So the injector is now $600 or whatever well, you know, it is. It's one of those things where it's, the states are um, allowing the pharmacist to uh, give out this uh, medication independently in some states. And the other thing is, is that the, in some states, the pharmacists are allowed to basically teach people how to uh, draw up from the vial so that they're not encumbered with the uh, these ridiculous uh, charges. So I think it's very variable. I don't think in any way that it is at least now the standard of care. No way. Yeah. All right. Do, do I get one more uh, sort of breaking news item please, before we go on? Please. Okay. The Illinois Supreme Court is has been handed the uh, case <clears throat> to decide whether state law exempting nonprofit hospitals from property taxes violates the state constitution. And the reason I bring this up is because so many hospitals in this country actually don't pay those property taxes. And when you think about it, the University of Michigan is in only one business other than the education business, and that's the medical care business. I mean, we don't build a car, and yet we have automotive engineering. We don't send rockets to space, and we have that kind of engineering. The only business the the university is in, outside of the um, outside of the educational process, is healthcare. And what is being claimed by certain hospitals is why should they have tax exempt? status for their buildings, their property, that sort of thing, which is in a basically a profit-making mode. Now, they call it nonprofit, but there's no bigger farce in the country than the term nonprofit. It's an interesting question because when, when Illinois comes down on this issue, believe me, there's going to be all kinds of other states that are looking for revenue which would want that money. Yeah, actually, actually, Illinois came down in this a couple of a couple of years ago against one of the uh, the biggest uh, uh, hospital uh, systems, uh, religious based hospital systems, and basically they <clears throat> lost their tax exempt status. Uh, and they take a look at uh, all sorts of things. Not only the fact that the hospital is operating at a certain margin, but the amount of uh, of charity care that's that's given out and so forth. And basically, the court decided uh, that they shouldn't be tax exempt anymore. Yep, I think I think that's <clears throat> I think that is this this one I think might was not just religion I think it's uh, somebody who was not religious but was uh, nonprofit for some other reason right. Right. Uh, and I think as as we think about these things 
That's right. They are in a business. And uh, if that business, if other businesses pay taxes on their property, does that disadvantage the tax-paying businesses as opposed to the non-tax-paying businesses? Yeah, and for a long time, the for-profits have complained that the uh, the non-profits are at an unfair advantage uh, by not paying taxes. And the fact is that, uh, that in many ways, the non-profits and the for-profits are both the same because all of them are not-for-loss organizations. Exactly. Rick, before, uh, before we move on to another topic, um, you know, I, I don't know whether how many people here remember Walter Winchell. And he used to have that that teletype behind him, you know, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America and all ships at sea. But we've got breaking news for you now from the ACGME. Rick, you know, there was an article just within the last uh, seven days that said that uh, we're going back. Uh, uh, science takes a giant step backwards and we're going to go back to having residents work 24-hour shifts. And that, uh, I, I don't know, maybe Libby Zion didn't, didn't uh, maybe it's too far away. Nobody remembers it anymore. But I think that for those of us who defend doctors, is there going to be an attack? And I want Mike's opinion on this, this saying, well, doctor, weren't you up 24 hours when this decision was made? I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Well, the plaintiff attorneys will always be looking for ways to attack the credibility, and uh, they will always be asking about this. But even right now, with not with residents, but with our attending physicians, one of the things that they ask about is whether uh, how long they were working, how long the shift was. Uh, and we've got one case now where the plaintiff has latched on to the fact that the, uh, the physician working night shift was taking pro-vigil. Uh, and is trying to make uh, make an issue out of that. Now mm-hmm. we'll probably get that excluded uh, because there <laughs> was no evidence based on uh, based on that that it affected anything. Uh, but uh, it definitely is going to come up. Well, you know, let me summarize um, the story from the Washington Post to give some of the details on this. It was um, March 10th. It was entitled "First Year Doctors Will Be Allowed to Work 24 Hour Shifts Starting in July." And it says the ACGME says it will improve patient safety in that there will be less handoffs. And everybody's had this um, thing about handoffs and the necessity to formalize handoffs and that they are the sources of of errors. They note that there will be um, imp- they'll they'll improve training by allowing patients to be followed for a more extended period. That's what the <laughs> surgeons have been saying for uh, decades. That um, the other thing that they also assert is that physicians' mental and physical health actually will be bolstered by requiring their supervisors to more closely monitor their well-being. Man, I have no idea what they're smoking. Let me tell you the uh, <clears throat> I was the president of the college when I had to go and present to SAEM the fact that they could no longer sign the residence charts. They actually had to see the patients. You would have thought I, I butchered their firstborn child. I, I never heard such screaming and gnashing of teeth. Then all of a sudden we accepted the fact that, that there was going to be attendings 24 hours a day because we can all, all remember 
when there were not attending physicians in the emergency department. Uh, Rick, I'm sure you can remember that, and Mike can remember that. Sure. Uh, it, what's but what's what's the effect of this on resident training and our uh, our various uh, attending physicians? I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure what this effect is going to be. Yeah, and I know Rick. I know you're uh, you're very much opposed to this change. Um, I think it's just uh, the pendulum swinging back the other way a little bit. Um, you know, the fact is, sleep hygiene is important for emergency physicians, and whether they're uh, attending physicians or residents, and it's something which I know, for example, Billy Mallon has talked a lot about, and it's something that we uh, as professionals and as specialists in emergency medicine, we have to become experts at this. Uh, and uh, occasionally you're going to have to work a 24-hour shift. And there may be some reasons. I know you have uh, you tend to discredit them, Rick, but there may be some reasons and some benefits, to, especially for a surgical resident, to working a 24-hour shift and following a patient through that um, so I, I'm I'm not prepared to say that the sky is falling in from this change. It's not saying that every resident has to work 24-hour shifts. It, at least it makes it so that it's not a violation if, in certain cases, a resident is working a 24-hour shift. Well, it's what it is. What it isn't is a per se violation. Right. Um, so that they can't immediately go to that and say, "Well, just based on your own rules, um, uh, you've <clears throat> you've committed." a sin here by having the resident work for that length of time. They are. You know, and, and I'm not sure which, which is worse. You know, I mean, somebody has to, uh, somebody will be covering nights. I'm not sure if it's worse switching from a week of day shifts and then having a few days off and then going to a week of night shifts, uh, making that adjustment as opposed to working a 24 hour shift, uh, once every other week or once a week and, and then, uh, flipping back to, uh, to day shifts. So just, you know, just eat, throwing, just throwing in uh, a, a tidbit here. When Billy Mallon did his uh, rather extensive little workup on this question, which I think was very well done, one of the things pointed out is we're not the only industry that does this. If you deal with the gaming industry in Las Vegas and any place they work, they have what they call casino shifting. And we think, well, you have to work eight hours or this or that. The casinos where, where people have to be sharp all the time, they don't do that. They have a different way of scheduling such that most people go home in the dark. They get to sleep. They get much better quality sleep. Um, I honestly think that this is going to be an evol evolving process where we're going to learn uh, how to how to manage twenty four hour a day businesses? I was at uh, one of our courses a couple <clears throat> of weeks ago, and we specifically asked how many in the audience went to those weird shifts where you're going home at two in the morning or something like that, and um, like one or two hands came up. I mean, it is certain, but certainly not the norm by any any stretch of the imagination. I would also point out that. The uh, regulations allows after the 24 hours for up to four hours of a, a transition. So you could be working 28 hours, which then goes, Mike, into approximating the, you know, the 24-hour shift plus the next day. They also point out that the 80-hour maximum work week, uh, week uh, is still in effect. Um, they are mandated to have one day off every seven 
They cannot work overnight more than one night in three. Um, you know, 80 hours, most people would say 80 hours is kind of excessive. I mean, they won't let airline pilots fly planes that fly themselves for 80 hours. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, I perceive that on the other end of the spectrum is there have been surveys about doctors uh, whether they've fallen asleep driving home and virtually every one of them says they've fallen asleep after a 24-hour shift driving home. Fortunately, now they have those cars that can alert you when you're going <laughs> out of your lane kind of thing and they'll stop in before you hit the pedestrian in front of you. And then if you really are doing well, you get a Tesla and then it'll take you home by your, and you can sleep in the car. Yeah. Um, but but. I am also concerned about this idea of um, burnout. Burnout is about your job and how you feel about your job. And um, I think I think it's real. I think that we may be kind of like beating our chest a little bit over it, maybe excessively. But burnout and depression are, I think, are very legit. Um, uh, one of the talks in this year's course is about burnout and uh, and physician suicide and. Um, Two residents um, in New York within one week jumped out of windows, um, which got the and killed themselves and got the attention of um, the uh, ACGME uh, about about depression and burnout. So, in any case, it's going to happen, and um, I think that they may have had some data. I I I, I should know better, but I saw something about a study that was done, a nine million dollar study that was done maybe in some way trying to defend this process. I just, I think that it's kind of like, I think, I think we got to, we could be working in a smarter way than having doctors work 24, 28 hours, that kind of stuff. As I, as I remember my younger days, um, <clears throat> at the first and second hours of any shift, there was nobody friendlier than me. Hi, how are you? What can I do for you? Thanks for coming in today. As you get somewhere near that 12th or 14th hour, all of a sudden it's, yeah, what do you want? Make my day. Um, I, I don't know how much Mike has seen this as personality interaction problems in causing uh, patient complaints and lawsuits, but you can see this as a potential danger. Well, we've not only seen it, but we've also recommended that uh, that emergency physician shifts be standardized in eight or maybe ten hours. We don't even like twelve-hour shifts. Right, right. And if if you're asking me uh, my opinion for emergency medicine, I think the idea of a twenty-four-hour shift in a busy emergency department is a really foolish idea, whether it's for an attending physician or a resident. On the other hand, if you've got a rural hospital that's seeing ten patients every yes. twenty-four hours, a twenty-four-hour shift makes uh, makes sense. Or if you're talking about a surgery resident who is following along some patients and is not uh, not working at the kind of pace that an emergency physician is working in a hundred thousand uh, annual census volume uh, ED, then a twenty four hour shift may be appropriate. So it's not a one fits all type of type of deal here, um, you know. But I would. Greg, we've seen that exact same thing, which is why we don't even like 12-hour shifts. Well, it's, exactly. It's interesting. Um, I also ask routinely uh, about physicians who have gone from 
12-hour shifts to eight-hour shifts because then, you, you know, that there's a downside. You got to go to the hospital more times to make up the same amount of hours, etc. It would be the rare hand, the rare hand that would say, well, I'd like to go back from 12 uh, hours to eight. And virtually absolutely. nobody does that. Absolutely. And, and yet the people who work 12 just think, ah, that's okay, I'll, I'll, I'll slug it out. They don't realize that they, they have a 30-year career, that this is not a marathon, um, uh, a, a sprint, that this is a marathon. you got to pace yourself. And the fact that physicians are so much happier when they work 8s than 12s is um, the, 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 my informal surveys on this are overwhelming, that that's the thing to do. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> and, and, well, and I think also that the stresses on physicians, if you're worried about burnout, the, the hours working is certainly a component or a factor to be considered, but there are certainly a lot of other pressures and a lot of other stressors in the job uh, which contribute to burnout a lot more than the hours worked. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. It's There are personalities who thought that they were going to enjoy emergency medicine or they were cut out for emergency medicine and that was fine when they were in med school. You know, they went home after eight hours. They thought it was great. When they actually matched in a residency program, you ask every residency director, and they'll say there are one or two people in each class that they have no idea why they chose emergency medicine because it's, it, it's not a good fit for them. Hey, guys, it's uh, getting towards the end. Uh, any final words of wisdom, Mike? Well, as, as I've told you before, I'm, I'm really short on wisdom. Um, I've got a bunch of experience, but uh, I can tell you that uh, one of the things that we've seen is a lot of uh, uh, tort reform efforts in various states. And one of the things that, uh, that we've seen success with is, uh, is damage caps. Uh, there's some uh, federal initiatives to establish a, a national damage cap, which I think is helpful. One of the other things is establishing a different standard of care or a different standard of proof to prove negligence. Those things have not uh, turned out to be as helpful uh, as we had hoped. Uh, for example, you have to prove gross negligence in some states, and all that's happened is that the plaintiff attorneys are hiring experts willing to say that uh, the negligence was gross negligence. So those things haven't panned out as well as we would have liked. Yeah, well, actually, the the current bill, which is uh, was put in a couple of weeks ago, HR twelve fifteen, um, <clears throat> wants to take anything tied to federal money, i.e., Medicare, Medicaid, aid to dependent children, those sorts of programs, where the health care is covered by some federal funds and make that covered by a $250,000 damage cap. Now, I, you know, I understand the arguments for damage caps. The one problem is there probably are some places where the damage cap should be above $250,000. $250, and uh, when you think about it, are we really getting, as the public, are we getting the benefits of, of uh, relieving us of all this medical legal problem. I think some of the claims, and I'm a doc, I've defended docs, but I think some of the claims they say uh, that benefits we get from, from uh, better malpractice reduction in caps 
just isn't there for the actual doctors. I don't think that our that our uh, rates of malpractice have gone down concomitantly with the drop in the number of suits. Well, except that California's uh, micro cap has been proven to to moderate uh, malpractice insurance <laughs> rates and the number of, of suits as well compared with other states which don't have that cap. So yeah. there's a history behind that. The um, guys, we're going to need to wrap up. I would acknowledge, however, that the 250000 cap that exists here has been in place for in excess of 20 years. Uh, there's been no cost of living uh, adjustments, etc. cetera. Uh, there was an initiative a couple of years ago to say, let's put a cost of living uh, adjustment on that. And that would have resulted in the cap now being worth $1.1 million. The, um, that was rejected by the voters of the state of California. The, um, so 250 is basically you can't buy a car here for $250,000. So. Well, you're not supposed to be able to buy with that because this is for non-economic damage. Right, this like is pain loss and of suffering. Happiness and and what, is, what is the cost of living increase in happiness? It, is, so it really doesn't, it doesn't apply. Consortiums yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Listen, guys, let's, let's wrap it up. Uh, Greg, you want to do, uh, do you have a wine of the month that you want to do? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. Would that, would that be okay? Yes, you you gotta you gotta get to the point now. Don't well, Rick. I hate to admit this in front of you, but the faculty down in Key West, we had a fantastic faculty dinner. Uh, and before you say anything, your Sorry. sister was at the table with us, paying the bill, paying the yeah, bill, paying the bill. Yes, exactly. And uh, we did we did do a duck horn. I I, I want to go back to some of the older names, which. Quite frankly, there's a reason they're still around and doing well. I think we did a Behringer, a uh, 2014 Cabernet Sauvignon, Knights Valley. This was a fantastic uh, Cabernet. And it, that, if you buy it at the store, is about 36 bucks a bottle. Now, if you buy it at that pricey restaurant in Key West, it's 100 and some bucks a bottle. Oh, great. But, but Rick... You can handle this. You can handle this. Do we, we get any walk-ins? Probably not. <laughs> you know. We did not. And you'll be happy to know I did not order one Louis Trez on your bill throughout the entire trip. So You're very me, kind. You're very let, kind. Let me, let me just say that, that I think we, we're very kind to you. But uh, let me say that the Beringer was uh, well worth it and a good time was had by all. Hey, Mike, thanks for joining us. I very much appreciate your, your words of wisdom. And Gregory, as always, I'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Thanks Bye -bye. for having me, guys. Bye-bye.